Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We are the younger generation. We are the ones who are going to be affected, and therefore we demand justice. What do we want? What do we want? Podstrike. Podcast supporting the global climate strike. Everyone should mobilize for the 20th of September because this is a global issue which actually affects everyone. We are all in the same boat, so everyone should be concerned about this. I'm striking because if we don't fight for our future now, soon we won't have a future left to fight for. I support climate strikes to push climate leaders to act for a brighter future for everyone. I'm joining the strikes because I believe it's time to resist and to take charge of the future that belongs to us, not to the fossil fuel companies. I'm joining the climate strikes to seek equality for the next generation. We need you to be a part of it because we need every age involved. Young people have been leading here, but now it's the job of the rest of us to back them up. This shouldn't be the children's responsibility because now the adults also need to help us. So we are calling for them to strike from their work because we need everyone. There is nothing we can't do, and I mean, if not you should do it, then who else? And if, if not we should do it now, then when, when should we do it? This podcast is part of Podstrike, supporting Greta Thunberg and the young people behind the global climate strike on the 20th of September. For more information, head to globalclimatestrike.net. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy podcast that has definitely not lied to the Queen, ever. Well, apart from that time when she said she'd spent 67 years on the throne, and I said, you need more fibre in your diet, and she said, what did you say? And I said, nothing. This is episode 156 because the politics just keeps happening. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week Prime Minister and glued together carpet shop scraps Boris Johnson has suggested that we'll break free of the EU like the Incredible Hulk. Which shows that Johnson's knowledge of superheroes is limited or he'd know that the biggest struggle the Hulk has is an internal one. 
Boris, of course, is not unlike the Hulk himself in that people don't like him when he's angry or when he's happy or really ever. And he also struggles to keep his trousers on. However, where he's different from the Hulk is that he doesn't have a highly intelligent alter ego, just an idiot he hired as a special advisor, and he's only green when it comes to ability. Also, to the Incredible Hulk's credit, storming into a meeting with the EU shouting Hulk smash is still a far more intelligent, coherent stance than Johnson's actual one. In his first meeting with President of the European Commission and Disney's Professor Owl, Jean-Claude Juncker, the only things the Prime Minister brought to the table were his threat that he might break the law if he hasn't already, and absolutely no alternative for a backstop, apart from some half-assed ideas about building an impossible bridge over a tonne of explosives. Why would anyone trust Boris with building a bridge ever again anyway, after he's either failed to make or burned all the ones he's previously been involved with? Johnson may as well have walked into Brussels declaring that if no one makes him the chocolate teapot he'd designed in his dream, he'll punch his own face into a coma. Needless to say, absolutely no progress has been made yet again, and if anything, now that EU know there's a possibility of Johnson ending up in prison, I'm not sure why they'd bother making an effort either. Johnson insists the EU has had a belly full of process, but considering he's never given them anything of substance, it'll be like getting a takeaway where they're hungry for more an hour after he's left. If, as he says, they are fed up of endless delays, then it really isn't helping that he's providing them with absolutely nothing, is it? I mean, you don't wang on about how someone's really dehydrated when you've turned up with only a bag of sand and some drawings of water that you haven't actually got. After Juncker, Johnson was meant to meet with the Luxembourg Prime Minister for a press conference, but after being booed at by crowds, he cancelled it and instead Xavier Bettel did it all by himself next to an empty podium, criticising Boris while looking like an angry merkin. And that's not very Hulk-like, is it? I mean, unless Boris is emulating when the Hulk disappears at the end of Avengers Age of Ultron and he's going to try his best to actually be liked on a completely different planet very far away. We can only hope. Either way, nothing paints a better picture of the UK's future with the EU, quite like it failing to show up and everyone carrying on regardless. Johnson says he cancelled it as it wouldn't have been fair to the PM of Luxembourg due to all the noise from outside, saying that they wanted the conference to happen indoors. What a cowardly stance that is. I mean, is that what his hero Churchill would have done? We shall fight them on the beaches. We will fight them. What? The beaches are outside? Well, that's not fair on anyone, is it? It'll be very noisy. Let's not bother then. Basically, people, this is all definitive proof that no matter what he says, Boris prefers being in to being out. If Nero fiddled while Rome burned, then that emperor can very much hold Boris Johnson's beer as this sort of pointless time-wasting task is indicative of the last week. Although it's far more likely that if Boris was meeting the ancient European leader, he'd probably just not bother to show up in case it was outdoors. Despite time being very much of the essence as the clocks tick down to a no-deal and conference season gets underway, the PM has spent most of it getting heckled in the north of England, getting Marvel characters wrong and insisting he hasn't lied to the Queen, which, if true, might make her the first woman he's ever been honest with in his life. Johnson had to vouch for not telling Porky's to Lizzie after the Scottish Court of Session ruled that his proroguing of Parliament was unlawful as it wasn't for legitimate political considerations. So questions arose as to whether Johnson saying it was to work on the Queen's speech was total bullshit but to be fair to him judging by his recent remarks it probably would take serious time and research to work out which superhero the Queen is like considering she doesn't seem to have any viable powers anymore. But while the Scottish Courts of Session didn't enforce a recall of Parliament, the government have appealed to the Supreme Court, which will be decided on this week, and whatever the outcome, it'll have a deciding factor in how the rule of law affects Parliament and what the Queen does with liars. 
I'd like to believe there's some medieval law that's never been amended that means Johnson will be strung up by his nether regions over Buckingham Palace as a warning to others, but chances are, considering how often her staff and family must lie to her about how riveting her Christmas speeches are or how well her husband drives or, you know, just about everything Andrew does, it's very likely a soz text will suffice. The ruling also raises questions about whether Boris's plans are for a suspension bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland, and if so, will he try to start it earlier than he should, and will it be illegal? Some reports are suggesting Johnson will U-turn, and the UK could remain closely aligned to the EU until 2022, meaning by the Prime Minister's own words he should be dead in a ditch by November the 1st. It's looking more likely, though, that we're heading for a no-deal, an outcome that we now have an idea of what it might look like thanks to the enforced government release of the Operation Yellowhammer documents, hilariously named after a small bird that's now rapidly on the decline. The five pages that were officially released look very similar to the leaked report from a few weeks ago, but with the big difference being that those original ones said base case scenario, but these new official ones say worst case. So either they've changed it, assuming that it might cause panic, or the base case and the worst case are exactly the same, as a lack of planning means there only is one type of case, or as Floor Drag Kebab and Chancellor of the Duchy Michael Gove is in charge of it, base case could have just referred to it being his choice surface for cutting lines, and now he's had to pass it round, he's gone back to using the top of the lavvy again. The supposed actual worst case scenario documents are titled Black Swan, either in reference to things being like Tom York wailing this is fucked up over and over again, or everyone will just easily reach Natalie Portman's weight when method acting as a ballerina. Yellowhammer states that there'll be a lack of fresh fruit and veg as well as low medicine supplies, but also that there are concerns about rioting and protests, and we all know that that can't be true and must just be fear-mongering, as clearly everyone will be so vitamin deficient that leaving their homes to get all angry will prove too tricksy. Leader of the Brexit party and the result of pouring toxic waste on the Wednesday morning post office queue, Nigel Farage, said that Yellowhammer was just Project Fear Mark II, which would mean it's new and improved on the first instance. And he said that it's just a worst case scenario, so it's very unlikely. I mean, he's right. Why should we ever prepare for the most severe scenario? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm planning to just insure my car for milkshake spillages and grinding the gears. And if you live in an area prone to flooding, why not scrap the insurance and sandbags and just carefully place a sponge on your front lawn instead? Instead. Former rebellious Conservative MP and style influencer for Dr Bunsen Honeydew, Sam Jima, has joined the Lib Dems in time for their party conference, even though there were probably easier ways to have got a ticket. Jima now joins former Tories Sarah, I definitely run a PTA and treat it like a dictatorship, Wollaston, and Philip, I've not slept in 48 years, Lee, as the Lib Dems' overall game plan just seems to be that they'll stop Brexit by making all the Conservatives join them until they take over the government. What does this mean for the party that they've now taken on an MP who actively blocked the progression of a gay pardon law for those accused of previously criminal sexual acts, while Lee refused to vote for gay marriage and wanted to make it so immigrants demonstrate they're free of HIV before entering the UK, and all three former Conservative MPs were pro-austerity? Are the Lib Dems moving rightwards, or did they just take notes from their former colleagues on what you need to get to get big donors and voted into the government in the UK? Since Extra from Peanuts, Joe Swinson, took over as Lib Dem leader, they've gained a new MP every nine days. So if that continues, they'd have six more by October the 31st, allowing them to, well, not really do much, but I guess they could adequately play football against themselves while a no-deal crashes in. If nothing else, it must be nice that they've now been able to move this year's conference from a scout hut to a local cafe. 
The Lib Dems have now voted that their plan isn't just for a second referendum, but to revoke Article 50, and as they say, cancel Brexit, which I think means teenagers will ignore it online for about a week, making a ton of memes, before entirely forgetting what it was all about and then being into it again. Swinson says she won't enter a coalition with either Labour or the Conservatives and wants to win 300 seats in an election, though she didn't specify if that was a general election or just one where people choose who gets to look after a lot of furniture. I mean, the latter seems far more plausible. The Labour Party have been very busy doing what they do best, which is, of course, contradicting themselves, because why annoy a few when you can piss off the many? Labour leader and Gerald Gardner dilutes Jeremy Corbyn confirmed that his party promised to hold a second referendum if they win an election with a credible leave option on the ballot as well as remain. But he won't say which side Labour would back, probably because they'd just campaigned for a weird middle ground option called this and that and odds and sods, hoping if people vote for it, they'll pledge to arm and er about it for so long that people lose all memory of what it was about in the first place and they'll get away with doing nothing. Deputy leader and King of the Hill star Tom Watson realised that everyone had ignored him for five minutes so piped up to demand Labour campaign for a referendum before an election even though the Lib Dems aren't campaigning for a referendum anymore so it won't have a majority in the Commons so Watson's plan is essentially to help Labour win an election by losing a call for a referendum first. Tom Watson there, a man whose team building exercise would involve going to paintball and insisting on only firing at his own crew until they learn something. Meanwhile, concerned that Boris Johnson's complete ineptitude as Prime Minister may make people fondly remember their premierships, the last two number 10 denizens have been face-planting into the spotlight for all the worst reasons. The resignation honours list from face drawn on a stalactite, Theresa May, was unveiled, and it seems she's mainly handed them out to her closest aides, despite the only thing that they all really excelled at being failure. Her former advisers Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill looking like neighbours who'd insist on walking around the garden naked but would call the police on you if your hedge was overgrown. Well, they've been awarded CBEs despite them resigning after helping lose Mayhem majority in the 2017 snap election and been accused many times of bullying. How can they be commanders of the British Empire? Well, I suppose as the Empire has pretty much collapsed, maybe they're the correct types to join it to help stamp out the burning embers and then claim victory when their own side are all defeated. May also awarded a knighthood to cricketer and inspiration for how Deadpool's face looks without a mask, Jeffrey Boycott, a man most well known for his batting and depressingly battery after being convicted of assaulting his ex-girlfriend in 1998. It does seem like Theresa May has more care and compassion for cricket than for women, but then I guess that should have been clear after so many of her policies have increased inequality and she preferred instead to spend most of her time as PM completely and utterly stumped. Hugely unlikable Prime Minister minus two and the result of a very damaged jelly mould, David Cameron, has been publicising his whatever the opposite of highly anticipated is autobiography, entitled For the Record, because he only likes music formats with spin. Part of his PR was attending an international summit on population genomics, presumably because of his own efforts to merge his DNA with a pig's. But also he's been telling shocking revelations about his time in the Brexit office, such as, and wait for this, you're not going to believe it, but Boris Johnson back leave in order to help his career. What? No way! I mean, I need to buy David Cameron's book now if it's full of juicy juicy like that, right? What other exciting chapters are there? 30 pages of revelations that bears shit in the woods? What? Cameron also says in his book that his only regret about austerity was not doing it harder and faster, which weirdly is also exactly the same thoughts he had about that pig's head. Slam! And lastly, with Badger on speed, John Burko standing down, the search for the next Speaker of the House is on with several possible candidates. However, I'd like to officially put myself forward, as I can speak, I have ordered things before, and I really, really want to tell Michael Gove to shut up. 
Welcome, wonderful Parpol Broads, and thank you for tuning in to yet another one of these podcast things. I mean, they just keep going on. I can't help it. I should probably see someone about it. It's weird. Before anything else, uh, you might have heard at the very, very top of this show that this week's podcast is part of Podstrike, which isn't a strike like a worker's strike, as I'm not sure how this podcast would stop being a podcast for a day. It's, it's tricky, it's sort of online, that it's just there. Um, but it's more a strike as in slam in your face in order to support the global climate strike this Friday on the 20th of September. Um, it's organised by Greta Thunberg, Total Hero, and the UK Student Climate Network, and by popping the ads and logos on this week's show, I hope it will encourage you to take part, or at least find out and support the strike, which you can check out all the info about at globalclimatestrike.net so go do that now or you know wait till you've listened to this show as it's a bit rude really for you to just walk off like that isn't it i mean what do you mean you can do it at the same time i'm very impressed very impressed Anyway, if you'd like to see what other podcasters are also champions of fighting climate change, then you can head to podstrike.net to see who's on the team as well. Um, I won't do much admin waffling on this week's show as I'm on solo childcare duty for some of this week as my wife's away on work stuff, which means I've been dealing with my daughter who's um, upgraded in the last week or so. That's it's, it's sort of like that thing in The Matrix where, you know, you know, Neo just wakes up and goes, I know Kung Fu. Well, that's what, like, kids do. They just suddenly one morning, they wake up and they're like, I know how to say all these things and ruin your life even more. And you go, where's that come from? How did that happen? Who plugged that USB in your head during the night? My daughter has suddenly been able to, just within the last week or so, reach the cutlery drawer and wield chopsticks, uh, which is the only bit she can get to, like their weapons, which in her tiny hands, to be fair, they are, and I do like my eyes. Um, today, a friend of mine rang, and within the few minutes I'd been on the phone to him, she'd gone all Tasmanian devil and unrolled the entire loo roll, thrown spoons all over the floor, unplugged her intercom and tried to put her fingers in the socket, and pushed over a whole ton of stuff. It's like a computer game where your house has been plagued by a mischievous guy goblin and you somehow have to catch everything they throw at you while also not letting them hurt them so it's really difficult to be honest uh, i'm surprised i haven't lost yet I'm very tempted to buy a child's Hannibal Lecter outfit for her so she can just spend the week trussed up and then only remove the mask for eating times. I think it would make things an awful lot safer. It does also make me realise just how clear it is that Boris Johnson must neglect his kids, otherwise he'd be much more used to juggling disasters. Um, anyway, thank you for all the nice words about last week's show, even from those of you who were very clear you didn't agree with all that Jordan said. And hey, I mean, neither did I. You wouldn't believe the willpower I had to have when he said he was influenced by how great Farage was. If I'd have had a wooden bar to bite down on, I'd have chewed all the way through it like an angry beaver um, but I'm very pleased you all liked it all that sort of posting on the socials very much helps and speaking of which welcome to all the new listeners uh, including you wrestlers who are recommended this pod by the excellent and wonderful Jim Smallman um, I hope this show crosses over well with wrestling uh, what with me uh, grappling the big topics slamming MPs and uh, me regularly getting completely thrown by very complicated terms yeah look I promise never to do that again I'm a dad these things just happen now um, big thank you to Chris, Helena, Ruby and James for the Kofi donations, all of which have gone into the coffee pot. Um, that's as in the pot for coffee purchasing, not the pot for coffee, as that would be really disgusting and hard to drink. I don't even know how you'd filter donations that would be weird um, but if you too would like to uh, and can donate to the podcast it's hugely hugely appreciated especially as I mentioned last week with the upcoming changes that will mean this show makes even less than it already does because hey capitalism is the best um, you can do that though at uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or if you don't mind the Patreon dollars sit you then patreon.com forward slash parpolbro as well and if you can't or don't want to do that then please give the show on one of the many pod review sites or just throw up a review in places that don't review podcasts hey think outside the box put a review for this on a google review for some plumbers or a roundabout or something yeah spread the word like that 
Oh, and um, the live gig is still happening on October 29th at 2 North Down in King's Cross. I will reveal more details of who's involved in the next few weeks, but mainly come along if you like this show and need somewhere to have beers before they're all stockpiled for the 31st. Uh, you can currently find far too many tickets on 2, that's the number 2, northdown.com or the link I've popped onto the pod blurb. On this week's show, I'm speaking to now second-time podcast Emily Kenway, all about modern slavery, which, no, isn't the progressive version of slavery. That isn't even a thing. Stop thinking that. That is awful of you. You're an awful person. Plus, of course, Brexit fallout, uh, despite not really having anything to say that hasn't already been said on this show. But, hey, what sort of politics podcast would this be if I didn't embrace the current inclination for pointlessly scrambling in circles, pretending I know things when I clearly and utterly don't? Well, exactly. Now get this in your ears. You might have heard the term modern slavery bandied on about in the news in recent years. And while you wouldn't be forgiven for thinking it was a very ill-advised spin-off from the sitcom Modern Family, it'd be very fair if you weren't quite sure what it meant. This is because it can mean a number of things, but crucially, modern slavery refers to institutional slavery that is somehow still happening in present-day society because, yet again, humanity is its own worst enemy. And yes, it's happening right here in the UK, something that you probably would have found more surprising a few years back before we entered the political roller coaster we're currently on, where all our successive leaders have forgotten to correctly strap in regulation or morality. Saying that, Prime Minister Minus One, Cactus Made of Skin, Theresa May, did promise money to end modern slavery and called it the Great Human rights issue of our time, which is very much at odds with how she usually dealt with human rights issues by just blaming them on someone else while simultaneously making them worse, or, you know, threatening to abolish the act those rights were part of. To be fair, though, that would end the problem, just in the way brushing all your crap under the carpet and referring to it as the camel rug definitely ends your messy room. May did introduce the Modern Slavery Act in 2015 as Home Secretary, and since then there's been an increase in tackling modern slavery. But review of the Act earlier this year pointed out that it hasn't really done enough, allowing those responsible for such grim oppressions of vulnerable people to, well, not really be accountable at all. Yes, I know there's definitely a theme with everything that happened under May's government. With so few convictions for modern slavery, it's been asked again recently if victims of it are being failed in the UK, with the Home Office replying that it's due to there only being a small number of cases. So what does modern slavery actually mean and include? And is this just another case of the government renaming things so they don't have to deal with it? And will we soon see a report about the prevalence of contemporary servitude, current day thrall and more, with an absence of funds to deal with any of them and a mountain to climb just to get past the rug in your room? This week, I spoke to Emily Kenway, a former advisor to the UK's independent anti-slavery commissioner and current advisor to an anti-slavery NGO. Emily has actually been on this podcast many moons ago when she worked with the Living Wage Foundation, and she now, in a similar tackling of societal injustice, is an expert on what needs to be done in order to make sure that people aren't still suffering under what, despite its name, is an archaic and brutal treatment that has only really progressed or changed in how it's carried out. So I asked Emily all about exactly what modern slavery is, what, if anything, is being done to prevent it, and also if Theresa May actually managed to do anything of note, because sometimes it's nice to ask questions that you lot will feel gratified that you already knew the answer for. Here is Emily. Hi, Emily. Um, Thanks very much for being up for chatting for the podcast again. It's nice to have you back. Um... I wanted to ask, I mean, I think for the listeners, really, uh, firstly, what is modern slavery? Uh, Those are two words that I'm sure everyone knows, but I don't think people quite understand what modern slavery is. And by people, I mean me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, thanks for having me back. And it's it's actually really not a stupid question. It's a a really um, 
a wiser question than you might realize because modern slavery as a term in itself doesn't have a legal definition in the UK and doesn't have an internationally agreed um, definition either. So it's actually like an umbrella term for a number of different kinds of offenses. And it's really um, been created as a kind of PR friendly wrapper to get more awareness from politicians, from the public of, a, of these issues. But um, yeah, it's quite interesting in itself. It doesn't really mean anything. It's quite problematic as well because it suggests a few different things. Like it suggests that there was old slavery and now there's there's modern slavery and that there might have been a gap in between where people weren't exploited and that's that's not the case, that kind of thing. But so we have this piece of legislation in the UK called the Modern Slavery Act um, and that legislation lists the things that come under it. So it's this umbrella for these other things. So they are um, slavery. So this would be your kind of older understanding of slavery. So it's where um, there's a, a person over whom the power of ownership is exercised. So someone owns someone else, right? That was that was defined by the UN in 1926. Um, servitude. So you're being obliged to perform services for other people and you're also being obliged to live in someone else's property and you don't have the possibility of changing that situation. Uh, forced labour also comes under there, which uh, means all work or service exacted from any person under the menace of any penalty for which they have not offered themselves voluntarily. So, um, so someone is being menaced. It could be psychological coercion, physical coercion to, to perform this labour. And finally, um, also human trafficking. So this is also a term people are probably quite familiar with but might not know what it means. Um, and it, it means that um, an act has been undertaken, so it might be recruiting someone, transporting them, uh, keeping them somewhere, receiving them by particular methods, which um, include use of force or other kinds of coercion, uh, abduction, which by the way is extremely rare and, and TV really likes using that one, um, fraud, deception and so on, for the purposes of exploiting them. So all of those basically mean someone is being controlled or coerced by another person and being used by that person uh, for exploitative purposes. So like for making, so for something which is beneficial to the controller and usually it's economically beneficial. I, I just wanted to ask, because sort of putting them all under the umbrella of modern slavery, and as you said, they are all somebody being uh, uh, oppressed and, and, and being used, you know, but, but they're all very specific things under themselves. Does kind of giving them one umbrella title mean that there's not enough attention paid to each area? Because human trafficking, for example, in itself is a massive uh, is, a, is a massive concern, you know, so then just kind of lumping everything under one vague title, does that make it harder to, to tackle these things? Um, well, so so some of those things can be the end product of trafficking. So like someone might end up in forced labour because they've been trafficked, so they kind of end up linking up in that way and it gets, it gets quite complicated. I think rather than um, kind of distracting from particular forms of it, it more... Um, creates kind of impressions in in like public mind and, and politicians mind of what it might mean that aren't really that accurate in practice so for example um people might imagine people being like physically kept somewhere like lock, locked somewhere right when you hear about modern slavery because you think back to chattel slavery or um abduction like i said is like a really kind of popularized notion of how these things happen so it can create just like a really crude picture 
And then you realise underneath that is like all this nuance and all these different forms of things going on. Sure, sure. Well, that's, yeah, that's sort of uh, like what I meant in that, that people kind of imagine the, uh, and all very horrific scenarios, but they imagine the kind of worst case or perhaps filmic type scenarios, but don't understand yeah, yeah. that there are things happening around them that they may not notice or be aware of that would come yeah, under such a title. Um, and And how... Prevalent is it in in the UK? Like, is is there a lot of modern slavery that happens in the UK that that perhaps we're not aware of? I know it's it's popped up in in the news a bit, and obviously that the, there was the Modern Slavery Act, which we'll, we'll talk about later. But is it is it something that's happening quite a lot in this country? Well, uh, so like, there's different estimates as usual with anything that's like a crime and it's hidden and all of that kind of thing. So estimates basically vary from like the the low tens of thousands up to the hundreds of thousands. So that's a huge huge ballpark. Um, what we do know is that, for example, in 2018, nearly 7,000 people were referred into our national support system for possible victims. Uh, it doesn't mean that they were all found officially to be victims, but it does give you a bit of a guide. Um, and it's also worth saying that not everyone who is a victim wants to go into that system for, for various reasons. So there will be other people who didn't even go into that system. So that gives you kind of a rough idea, but, but no one completely knows. And also, because the Modern Slavery Act is quite new in terms of legislation, it's only four years old, there are still things that happened before that people haven't seen as modern slavery and are now being moved into like that crime type. So, for example, um, forced uh, drug dealing is starting to come in well quite strongly as as a form of one save with young people being forced to be involved in drug running whereas you know before 2015 we wouldn't have called that one slavery so it, it that it's partly about what we're putting inside the basket not just how what is actually going on yet and so and and that's uh so obviously uh people being forced to to deal drugs is, is one area but is are there any particular sectors because you mentioned kind of enforced labor earlier does that mean there are there are companies or there are there are certain sects of work that it's happening in more frequently than others. Yes, definitely. Um, so if you're if you're thinking about um, kind of legal work sectors where it's happening, then you're looking for sectors with particular kinds of characteristics, right? So you basically want if you're an exploiter, you're looking for people that are exploitable, i.e., they're kind of vulnerable in some way. You can do that to them. So um, sectors where there's lots of agency workers, sectors which require lower waged work or kind of manual work, high proportions of migrant workers, anywhere where there's a lack of state regulation, like not you know, licensing, lack of inspection, subcontracting, like where the, the like um, clarity of who's responsible for these workers just kind of dissipates the lower you go down. So that means... Uh, sectors like construction, hospitality, cleaning, agriculture, these kind of spaces um, where you'd find those characteristics. And I guess that makes it incredibly hard to make the companies in charge accountable for something that is happening that may be several employments below the top. I don't know if, if it's hard to find the chain of command. Does that mean it's very, very hard to pinpoint who's accountable for all of this? It's, it's such an interesting question and I really hope that if we were having the same conversation in like five to ten years time that the answer would be like m much different. So at the moment, um, if, if a business owner is knowingly employing workers 
who have been trafficked, then they would be legally held accountable. And there was a case of this in 2016. A man called Mohammed Rafiq, who ran uh, bed factories in West Yorkshire, was convicted uh, because he was using what was dubbed like a slave workforce of um, a, a number of Hungarian men who'd been trafficked to work in his factories. Now, they'd been trafficked by a couple of other Hungarian guys. So it wasn't Rafiq who who moved them, but he knew exactly what was going on. And indeed, some of the victims directly spoke to him and said, we want to be paid directly because they weren't being paid. Um, they were being given like £10 a week pocket money kind of thing. They weren't being paid. And he, he said, take it up with essentially the two Hungarian gang masters. And so he was found guilty. So there are examples of that. But most of the time, exactly as you say, what happens is the people convicted would be the people directly doing the thing, not the businesses kind of around it who've benefited in some way from that labour. Um, and and there's so much, there's really important questions to be asking about this. I think so. For example, in people might remember in 2014 there was a big expose of slavery in uh, prawn supply chains in Thailand and how our supermarkets are using that. Well. It's, a re it's really interesting to point out, obviously, they are not directly uh, en enslaving people that far down. It's really far down the supply chain. But our supermarkets are still selling us prawns from particular bits of Thailand where it is known, documented, etc., that there is a huge problem and it's still ongoing with slave labor. So where is the accountability in that space, given that they're profiting from that? And I think that is a question that really needs to be answered properly. And is that something, um, is that something, because I remember vaguely reading that uh, when Theresa May was leaving her post as Prime Minister and she had made a vow to, to promise to end modern slavery, um, which, you know, uh, along with other things. And um, mm -hmm. one of the one of the things that the Modern Slavery Act was meant to do was to make companies more accountable. Um, did Has anything been put in place to make that? happen and how i mean how do you even start doing that yeah well i mean actually there are ways that we could start doing it they're not funnily enough the ways that Theresa may chose um so um the, the modern slavery act includes in it this um this bit called section 54 transparency and supply chains and what that that's the bit that people focus on with companies and what it does is it requires um businesses in the uk to publish an annual modern slavery statement explaining what steps if any they've taken to address it in their supply chains and business and the the really important thing to, to note here is that in order for them to comply legally with that bit of the law all they have to do is publish this statement annually have it approved by the board and signed by a director they don't have to actually do anything in their supply chains and they can legally just write a statement that says hello we are company X, we've done nothing, but it's been published, signed by, approved by, and that meets that requirement. And so, I mean, the idea that that is meaningful, it has made some companies take more action because they want to sort of try, but I mean, there are ways that we could actually do stuff. So there's like a form of law called joint and several liability, which would make the company at the top of the supply chain have legal responsibility for violations lower down. So like in, um, in Germany, the client company at the top can be liable to pay employees of subcontractors if they've not received the minimum wage, even if that client company didn't know about that. 
So there are there are like proper ways we could go about some of this stuff, but of course, what's chosen is what I would call like the CSR corporate social responsibility, like the kind of comfortable the comfortable version whereby what you've really got are the kind of profit making interests dictating the terms of the solution. And I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's, I'm slightly speechless about that. That's ridiculous. But the but the um, <laughs> you know what is is the aim that these companies would be shamed into doing more about it? And and I guess. <laughs> Is yeah, the problem there would be that not enough people know to look for this in companies or in the way that a company is run for it to be, yeah. to, for, for them to be shamed accordingly. Yeah, and I mean, so yes, exactly. So like, this is like a, a, a like standard practice of the type of government that we've been under for quite a while. It's like rather than legislating in a way that would make kind of government have to make sure companies are doing things they're meant to do and that kind of thing. They put the responsibility on to the public, to the consumer, right? So a lot of the rationale around Section 54 is like, well, companies publishing the statement, NGOs and, and the public can go, and, can go and read them and then they can make a choice at the checkout and NGOs can campaign and make them improve. And that's a, like a stated part of the rationale. And it's so problematic because like the idea that loads of consumers are going to go and read the Monsavory statements is obviously kind of stupid in the first place, but also that you would know what you're reading, right? Because this is like complicated. And unless you're an expert in it, how do you know whether you're just reading like fancy PR language or actual meaningful action? You know, if a company says that we've signed up to the responsible seafood principles because we care about slavery and poor supply chains, well, what are those principles? Are they actually working? Like who's assessed them? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so it just makes no sense really as a, as a strategy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Emily in a minute. But first... Brexit fallout! If you haven't been keeping up with where we are with Brexit, that is fine, as most of the political parties haven't either. 
I mean, the Conservatives are still very much heading for a no deal on account of Boris Johnson spending his time being taken down by people in Leeds and cancelling press conferences because he's scared of noises. But he's supposedly backing away from a no deal, even though Johnson's still telling the EU he doesn't want an extension to Article 50, even though legally he has to ask for one, and even though he clearly loves them as his entire wanting to be Prime Minister was essentially one big extension to make up for his tiny, tiny penis. Meanwhile, Labour don't want a no deal, but they do want a deal, but they might want an election first, but some of their MPs don't want that, and Tom Watson now wants a referendum where Labour back remain, because his insistence on never being satisfied with whatever his party decide is nearly at a point where Mick Jagger would tell him to fuck off. The Lib Dems now want to revoke Article 50 and be done with it all, although half of their MPs are now former Tories, so chances are they'll change their mind before anything goes through. And if anything, not backing a referendum anymore means they'll just split the Remain vote, so chances are a harder Brexit will get through anyway, which is maybe what they want, so then they can argue amongst themselves like a big league party. The Greens have now slammed the Lib Dees for their new stance and said that they still back a referendum because even though they back remaining, they said you can't turn your back on leavers, which is sort of what Labour said before, but not very well, and the Greens criticised them for it then, and it's almost like the Greens just love recycling ideas. And the Brexit party? Uh, well, they're still just being so damn vague about what they want. I mean, why won't they just clearly state their preference? It is all too confusing, and it really doesn't help them stand out when everyone else's Brexit policies are so clear. The big questions right now are what will happen if the government ignores the law and doesn't ask for an extension? If they do ask for an extension, will Boris have to die in a ditch? Have they already broken the law by proroguing and that being ruled unlawful in Scotland? Will a second referendum happen? And what will happen if we do leave on October 31st without any deal? Well, considering this podcast isn't six hours long, here's a very quick set of answers to most of them. I have no idea. I hope so. No, because they didn't enforce it and it'll depend on what happens in the Supreme Court. Probably not, as there's no majority for it unless there's an election and Labour win, even though it's now likely been scuppered by the Lib Dems. And, ah, well... For the last one, thanks to Operation Yellowhammer, which sounds like a version of the popular board game where you get to remove items from a fictional Viking chief, but it isn't, we've got some idea. The measly five-page report stated briefly what the government think would happen in the event of a no-deal, in what, on official release, is supposedly a worst-case scenario, and also has a big bit redacted, because there's no better way to make sure the public don't panic than by blocking out a paragraph that could just be, watch out, everything will explode! I mean, I'm pretty certain that isn't what it says, but now they've redacted it, we will never, ever know. Ever. Actually, comparing it to the very, very similar report that was leaked in August, it likely says that no deal will lead to two refinery closures with direct job losses, as in order to make petrol imports competitive, the government will set petrol tariffs to 0%, and there'll be one to two weeks of disruption of fuel availability in the region supplied by those refineries. So that's great, because uh, job losses and people panic buying petrol are exactly what a country needs in these times of uncertainty. The rest of the report, brief as it is, is fairly worrying, with medical supplies and medicines being hugely vulnerable, potentially leading to disease outbreaks, certain fresh food supplies would be reduced, as would types of packaging, and low-income groups would be disproportionately affected, which is cool, right, as they've had it so damn easy for years. Am I right? Gibraltar's going to have a terrible time, there'll very likely be some sort of hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, no one's prepared, and there'll likely be riots, because remember, people called the police when KFC ran out of chicken. It also seems that businesses and public bodies are not very ready for any of it. But on the plus side, electricity and water shouldn't be affected, so you'll be rehydrated and able to see as everyone storms Westminster at night. And hey, without packaging or petrol, we'll be a more environmentally friendly country overall. So it's just a shame we'll all have some sort of zombie virus and be readily quarantined from the rest of the world. These are estimates, and despite the change in wording from base case scenario to worst case scenario, it's still just predictions based on the fact the government has really done fuck all and didn't even want people to know about it. 
But some places are prepared. Uh, grocers are apparently making procedures to airlift food in. Some businesses are ready. Um, I know from my diabetic nurse that the insulin I need has been stockpiled, just not necessarily the equipment I need to inject myself with it. So uh, that'll make for some fun experimentation with knitting needles and a lot of vodka. And all the while, we'll still have tasty, tasty water. The thing is, whether or not this apocalyptic scenario will occur, and in a way, I'm kind of up for it as I've read a lot of dystopian fiction, and I now know not to look in cellars. What we do know is that either this is a double bluff, and last minute Boris will pull out May's old deal just so everyone votes for that instead of a no deal, or he's all out for this no deal and will plough straight into it because his financial backers and the donors of the Leave campaign have £8 million in bets on a no deal crash out and can make a mint from it and watch all the riots on drone cams from their moon base, maybe. Okay, look, we really don't know that. That isn't something we know. We haven't got a clue what will happen. But the fact the report is out and the public now know, the fact that Johnson has lost every Commons motion so far, and the fact that whether or not what is happening is deemed illegal, law is intervening, all of that, all of that is reassuring. Though maybe what we really need uh, is to encourage the government to engage in even more illegal activity until they end up on the run from the police and escaping abroad so that we can get rid of them. Hey, look, it's a better and clearer plan than any of the parties have so far. So there. And now, back to Emily. I know there was a review into the Modern Slavery Act that happened earlier this year, and I know um, that they pinpointed quite a lot of areas uh, that were problematic. Um, is Was that review good? Is there, are there things that are you know going to be changing as a result of it? Yeah, it was It was good, actually. It was really <clears throat> heartening when they came out with, with it because um, there, it was three parliamentarians who ran it and they it really seemed like they'd listened to what everyone had been saying and, and um, a lot of the recommendations were things that I and other people have been advocating for for ages. So on, on the thing we've just been talking about, the statements, they, um, are, they are pushing for things like uh, government-run open registry of the statements given that that doesn't exist and that part of the rationale is for the public to take an interest is kind of kind of important but also there's been no penalties for companies that aren't complying with this right in 2017 43 percent of the FTSE 100 didn't even comply with it and remember what i said about compliance right and there's been no penalties so they recommended penalties and so there was like a range of things that they did and it's great and of course the government now is consulting on loads of them so it's going to take quite a long time for any to come in and we'll have to see what they are when they do but yeah it was it was a good thing and it was done well and there's a lot of questioning or querying about the role of the anti-slavery commissioner um what what is that what do they do is it a useful role um or has it not you know has it been used properly to date um it is i think it's a i think it is a really important role to have in the legislation provision for someone who is separate to government. Um, given that governments come and go, it's obviously particularly relevant right now. Um, ministers get <laughs> um, get new portfolios they know nothing about, right? Um, I would definitely much rather there was like a stable expert presence that had a, a mandate to provide scrutiny to what government's doing to outlast governments as they change. Um, it, it's so important that we that we have that continuity, but also that that there's a um, like an official voice that can hold government to account. So, for example, our immigration policy in the UK today is completely at odds with actually genuinely trying to tackle modern slavery because the hostile environment makes people far more vulnerable to being exploited but a commissioner like the government is obviously not going to point that out because it's them um a commissioner could point that out and could 
um, make statements around that kind of thing. They, you know, they could ask for more money for policing and labour inspections to stop this. So um, there, there's a lot that that role could do and it, it protects us in a way from it just being the government that is kind of looking at its own activities. And it, Because one of the things that I read that the anti Commissioner kind of recommended that's already supposedly being or they started to be put into place is um to is the speeding up of of modern slavery uh convictions or the convictions for modern slavery offenses um is that something that's likely to be effective does it uh, again i you know this is an area that i really don't anything about so i sort of read that and that sounds like that's a really important thing that needs to happen uh is it likely to be done in a way that will make a difference um i mean i the the current commissioner is is um has come into the post from being an extremely high up uh, person in the police and so is certainly very well placed to understand like how do you improve investigations and and the whole kind of chain of events in order to then have more convictions i think um it's always actually to be fair to police and prosecutors it's actually always going to be really difficult to get lots of convictions on this and they are prosecutions and convictions have like by and large gone up on this anyway since the act but it, these cases are crazily complex like there's just been one in all over the news that was um the biggest case so far it's taken three years for the investigators to collect all the evidence and they went through for example um 650,000 telephone lines of data that's like one part of what they did right so there's an extent to which like these are really complicated and then especially if you factor in not all of them might not always be physical violence so you've then got like kind of understanding of psychological control needing to come in but one really important point is around victims and if you're a victim of modern slavery in the UK and you've been found to be that by the government you don't and you're you're not from the European Union right they don't give you leave to remain automatically. Like you don't get to stay here. We have victims of modern slavery who have been recognised by government as that, who are in our immigration detention centres right now, and we deport them. So, mm-hmm, yeah, so so there's another kind of another aspect, like um, the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights, for example, has recommended offering leave to remain to victims, which, you know, aside from the fact that one might think that's a basic moral uh, uh, necessity, would enable um would be an incentive to be part of prosecutions as well so there's there's like lots of factors to it um, yeah, I uh, it's something that I haven't mentioned. We sort of talk about who's accountable, but I, I suppose I should really ask you: so who are the, the the most vulnerable people that are likely to be, you know, en- enslaved, or the people that end up uh, in enforced labour? Is it likely to be people that have have come to the UK or been sort of uh, forcefully brought over? Is that is that generally the the kind of victims of modern slavery? Mm, um, uh, British victims are in the top three nationalities of victims um actually so it's it's kind of interesting in that way it's essentially i think rather than necessarily thinking about it on a nationality basis it's about um particular like characteristics that someone presents and i I think one really important thing to say is like no one is inherently vulnerable to this like particular systems around them make them vulnerable so Undocumented migrants, highly, highly vulnerable because they cannot access services, they can't legally work, they can't get support and help if they need it. So they're just ripe for exploitation because of because of the immigration policy that we have. Um, people who are 
um, homeless and maybe and or have kind of dependencies are highly vulnerable. So um, so there's there's plenty of instances of men, homeless men being being deceptively recruited from homeless shelters and soup kitchens. And, and that's um, that's where the nationality point is, because. British men fall prey to that, and also the operation I just mentioned, the massive one, um, they purposefully preyed in Poland on homeless men, men with dependencies, men with previous convictions who basically were destitute or kind of desperate for a job and then brought them here. So it kind of, it doesn't really matter what your nationality is, unless, of course, your undocumented and the government has like made you vulnerable in that way. Um, yeah, so... So it will. You need to have something about you that someone can use to exploit. And is there much? I mean, you mentioned earlier, obviously, in the case of you know there being some uh, victims of monoslavery that are in immigration centres, which is just uh, really upsetting. But I mean, is there are there any systems of um, sort of uh, help for people that are being victims of trafficking? Levels of support? Is there any? Is there anything in place at the moment? Yes. Um, so the the national referral mechanism is the name for the UK's framework for identifying and supporting victims of modern slavery. So if somebody's been recognised that they there's reasonable grounds to believe that this person is a victim, they get 45 days, a minimum of 45 days of recovery um, with state support, and that can be extended. And then once they're recognised as definitely a victim rather than reasonable grounds, they can get another 45 days of support, although that's now being changed after loads of campaigning. So obviously 45 days after you've been through like extreme trauma is not very much. So it's now being um, changed to being on a needs basis. Um, but I should say about that whole system, whilst it you know has done a lot for some people, um, I come back to this point that you can be you can be in that support system and in detention. <laughs> so there's like a very strange thing going on in in our country, and we have to be quite careful of taking at face value what what can sound good. Um, there are other things that people are doing, like the co-op, the um, the supermarket chain uh, has been running for for a while. This thing called Bright Future, which gets um, survivors back into work and it's actually really amazingly done and um, very like centered on the needs and rights of the person so there's there's kind of other things that are going on but um, the main thing is that that state support but many people choose not to go into it if they're undocumented because they don't want to be in the system because we know what happens when undocumented people end up in the system oh that's really depressing i i am um, i wanted to yeah i mean i was from from talking to you, I mean, and and I think just generally knowing that people are aware of it. I know there was a Radio Four show about modern slavery the other day, and there's uh, it's been it's been mentioned on the news, and and whether or not modern slavery act has helped, it's it's I think there's definitely been uh, more of an awareness about it. Do you feel kind of going on that that there is hope for tackling it? Um, that things are being put in place. I mean, there's obviously I'm guessing some concerns about what Brexit might do to the lack of documentation and 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 the possibility of making more people vulnerable um you know what what do you kind of see for the for the future of tackling it that's a that's an interesting question i mean like a lot of this just depends on government policy right and so um i think in the kind of situation we're in at the moment it's like chipping away at the bad to try to make it less bad uh, that's really that's really what it feels like. That doesn't mean it has to always be that way. And so I think the job of of people like me and and everyone else working to like meaningfully end it is to work out well what are the 
what are the real solutions that would like genuinely change the systems and structures that are making people vulnerable. Uh, like I mentioned, joint and several liability is like a meaningful thing. Like what are those meaningful things? And just be kind of trying to get them in place and, and ready with that package if we get to a point where arguably it's being taken more seriously on a structural level. Yeah, fingers crossed. I suppose. Yeah, it's it's also turbulent right now. That and I think a lot of people don't realise how much areas like this are affected by the bigger oh, yeah. decisions or neg- neglected. I suppose I should also say. But, yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. Um, what the final question? Uh, which uh, I you know I ask every single guest on this. I've asked you once before actually. But the um, apart from yourself um, <laughs> and your Twitter, which I highly recommend all listeners follow. Um, what other campaigns or people or charities should listeners check out um, in terms of tackling and informing about modern slavery? Who do you go to? Um, so the Human Trafficking Foundation is a, an obvious um, and, and great charity that is worth following for kind of keeping up to date on what's happening. Um, there's a couple of journalists who are really interesting on this. There's Mae Bullman, who's at The Independent, and she does quite a lot on this. She's been covering victims of trafficking and in detention as well, and her articles are really worth reading. Um, and also Kieran Gilbert, who's at Reuters and runs their whole kind of slavery hub, um, is always always worth looking at. What I, who I'd really say as well is... Um, Open Democracy has a, a thing called Beyond Slavery, Beyond Trafficking and Slavery, and their articles are amazing from like academics, researchers, people on the ground around the world, and it's it's really great. And definitely also um, uh, focus on labour uh, exploitation, on focus on labour exploitation, which is um, an organisation really worth looking at the work of. Thanks so much to Emily for the chat and really nice to have her back on the podcast. You can find Emily on Twitter at Emily Kenway, K-E-N-W-A-Y, and her website is at emilykenway.com. She has a book on modern slavery coming out next year, which I'll remind you about nearer the time. And links to all her recommendations will be up on the website soonish. But do check out Focus on Labour Exploitation, aka Flex, who are at labourexploitation.org and at Focus on Labour on Twitter, as they're doing some great work on it all. But this podcast is still hungry for guests, like some sort of knowledge-eating machine that must be fed, for else it devour all of the written word like an audio version of The Fire at the Library of Alexandria. Or, more realistically, it'll just end up with me talking shit like that for ages, and you'll all unsubscribe. So, send in once for subjects or people I should have a chat to, and I'll get on the case. Several of you have already suggested excellent people, I do know that, and if they've not been on yet, it's because they won't reply to my emails that are probably swimming in their spam, or their agents have printed off my email just so they could throw it in a bin, because they hate it that much. But I do keep chasing, and the more you send in, the higher chance I'll get at least one of them on. So, drop me a line at the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, the at Parpolbro Twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com with the subject line letting me know whether or not you've lied to the Queen this week, just so I know if I can trust your recommendations. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for listening while you stockpile eye rolls and tuts in time for Brexit. If you do enjoy the podcast, please do spread the word like it's a tasty spread, only uh, made of letters. 
letters, not lettuce, a lettuce spread, would be the actual dictionary definition of grim. Oh, God, this ending's gone all over the place. Maybe don't mention this content when recommending the show. Thanks. Also, please do review the show on whichever pod apps you use that have the option to review, or maybe sneak over to one you don't use if yours doesn't have the capabilities, like, you know, popping into the loos on the third floor because they have the air blade and yours just has a sign saying wave wet hands vigorously here. If you have the means, or uh, the uh, opposite of means, the nices, then please donate to the Kofi or Patreon and kindly keep me replete in needed coffee supplies. Thanks every goddamn time to Acast, my brother the last sceptic for the musics, and to Cat Day for the online notes. And this will be back next week when the Lib Dems have continued to absorb MPs at a faster and faster rate, like a political nucleus, until eventually they merge as the mega-centrist, stomping their way along just the middle of the road, not really causing all that much trouble, and the army think about intervening, but insist to everyone that it's not worth it, as they'll probably just peter out by themselves. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Tom Watson's Choose Your Own Adventure, but I'd prefer it if I could choose it for you. 512 exciting possibilities that all end with, no, you're wrong, start again. On your left is a party policy as decided on democratically by members, but on your right is an opportunity to promote yourself. Which way do you turn? Left. No, you never turn left, you idiot, you failed, start again. Okay, right. No, stupid, that would work for Tom, but not for you as you're anyone else but him. Better luck never. Tom Watson's Choose Your Own Adventure, but I'd prefer it if I could choose it for you. Out now for literally seconds of fun. We are the younger generation. We are the ones who are going to be affected, and therefore we demand justice. We want justice. When do we want it? Podstrike. Podcast supporting the global climate strike. Everyone should mobilise for the 20th of September because this is a global issue which actually affects everyone. We are all in the same boat, so everyone should be concerned about this. I'm striking because if we don't fight for our future now, soon we won't have a future left to fight for. I support the climate strikes to push climate leaders to act for a brighter future for everyone. I'm joining the strikes because I believe it's time to resist and to take charge of the future that belongs to us, not to the fossil fuel companies. I'm joining the climate strikes to seek equality for the next generation. We need you to be a part of it because we need every age involved. Young people have been leading here, but now it's the job of the rest of us to back them up. This shouldn't be the children's responsibility because now the adults also need to help us. So we are calling for them to strike from their work because we need everyone. There is nothing we can't do, and I mean, if not you should do it, then who else? And if, if not we should do it now, then when, when should we do it? This podcast is part of Podstrike, supporting Greta Thunberg and the young people behind the global climate strike on the 20th of September. For more information, head to globalclimatestrike.net. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.